Hey, it's Matea, reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canada Land supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canada Land shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes, like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup, more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada, and of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. Hey, it's Matea Roach and this is The Backbench, a podcast about Canadian politics and catching up on our summer reading. Today on the show, we'll be taking a look back to some of the biggest political stories of the summer, and we'll also be taking a look forward to see what's on the political horizon this fall. Joining me this week, we have an all-star panel, guys. First up, we've missed her on the show as much as you probably have. We have Emily Nicolas, columnist and host of Candleland's own Detour. Welcome back. Thank you, Mathia. Next, a Candleland TikTok video with him and I went viral, much to my chagrin, because I don't know what happens on TikTok. We have David Mosscroft, social media sensation, author, writer, and more. Hey! I got some feedback, too. And our third Backbench All-Star, and previously your interim host while I was on my little sabbatical, we have Riley Yesno. Hello, hello. Let's get into it. It seems like everyone's been enjoying a nice summer break. Our prime minister went on a little family holiday, and the media's been obsessed with that. Conservative leader Pierre Poilievre has whipped out his reflective aviator shades for the summer, and NDP leader Jagmeet Singh is probably, like, making TikToks or whatever it is that he does. And Parliament's been out of session for the past two months. So even though things have been kind of slow relative to how they would normally be during the year, there have still been things that have happened that are worth unpacking. So for this episode, we want to give you updates on stories that you may have missed while you've been on your own summer vacation, get you up to speed on some stories that we've covered in previous episodes where there have been some updates, and we'll take a look ahead at what you should be keeping your eye on once Parliament returns in September. So first things first, it's kind of difficult sometimes to keep track of news over the summer. People disconnect, they go on vacation, Parliament's also just not as active, so there's less stuff to even keep track of, and also it's nice to mentally check out sometimes. But there's another reason why it's been harder to keep track of the news lately, and that's because of the aftermath of Bill C-18, the Online News Act. So this is the bill that was passed not that long ago that has forced two tech giants, Google and Meta, into paying to have content on their sites from news organizations, basically. And what we've seen happen is that Meta has retaliated by removing all Canadian news from Facebook and Instagram, and Google has also threatened to delist all Canadian news. So, David, where do we stand now with Bill C-18? Is there a timeline or like a set of milestones in place for us to judge the effectiveness and impact of this bill on achieving its goals? Because it seems like right now, Bill C-18, it feels like it's backfired, at least from my sort of read of the situation. Well, it's definitely backfired. If the goal was to get social media giants to compensate news outlets for ostensibly links, but actually for for ruining the advertising model on which uh, media was was based. If that was the goal, then it has utterly failed. Not only has it failed, it's actually produced worse outcomes than there would have been if it had never existed in the first place. Because in fact, 
outlets were getting revenue indirectly from links on social media giants initially. And they were also striking bilateral deals with these folks for funding. Those deals have been canceled, they've been rolled back, and the links have now been uh, blocked. And there's a standoff between the federal government and between Meta and Google. That standoff is not proceeding in parallel in each case. Google's being a little bit more cooperative. They seem to be advancing, a little bit more willing to engage, to try to find a compromise. Meta isn't. And to give you a really quick sense of, of why the struggle has evolved the way it has, Canada is sort of at the cutting edge of a big global battle. It's one of the few moments where we're actually globally uh, outsized significant, as Australia was before us. And that's because we're trying to regulate and extract revenue from these tech media giants. And the world is watching because they may emulate or avoid the model based on what's happening here. So already it's, there's talk in New Zealand. California has a bill that's uh, on hold right now, but it's uh, in front of the state Senate. And there's a bill in Congress, too. Yeah. So I suppose, like, the way that I've been reading this is that Canada is almost like a test case to see, you know, whether this legislation is going to work to produce its intended effects. It seems like not. Whether there's any sort of possibility to negotiate with these social media giants. It kind of feels like the problem we're running into is that we're too small of a media market to be able to, like, effectively regulate social media giants, like, unilaterally. And that we would almost need, like, other countries to also try to impose these same regulations in some sort of tandem. What you just said makes sense. Usually, and when it comes to international relations, I don't know, I'm going to make this weird parallel, but I remember when we were talking about Canada's relationship to China or whatever, it was always, you know, we need to act multilaterally because otherwise Canada is going to be, you know, paying the price for the burden of retaliation. And somehow we thought that Facebook and Google were smaller than China, but they're not <laughs> in some ways. The way that this bill is designed in and of itself has has some issues. And now we're past the point of even being able to talk about them because essentially it's a David and Goliath thing. But actually within Canada, there's Canada-sized Goliaths, and that is legacy media. And there were independent media who were against this bill or had flagged very serious problems for what it would do for smaller players in Canada. That's the question that I have, too, is like, I don't really see what our way out of this situation is at this point, because I think it would be a bad look for the government to sort of walk back this legislation and essentially admit that it didn't work the way that they'd planned. But then it is a huge problem to me that there's really critical news in some cases about like active disasters that are happening that's not able to be shared because Facebook and Instagram, which are like primary news sources for a lot of people, are just systematically blocking and, like, with a really broad brush, too, like, in some things that, in my opinion, are, like, not even really news but are more kind of commentary, like, they're just blocking all of it altogether. I want to kind of circle back to something that Emily mentioned just as the comparison between, like, the sort of foreign interference kind of Canada not being able to act unilaterally uh, just because, like, the power that we're dealing with is so big in terms of China. One other story that's been sort of big but has fallen a little bit out of the news for me recently has been the whole, like investigation into foreign interference by China, whether it happened, to what extent it happened, what races might have been affected in recent elections by it. So I want to check in, where are we at on this foreign interference file? So the last that I remember was David Johnston, who was the special rapporteur that was appointed to look into this, had resigned essentially due to political pressure and due to concerns that he wasn't like an unbiased neutral party. 
That was back in June, and the conservatives are still putting pressure on the liberals to do some sort of inquiry. So, Riley, is there anything that we've missed here? Like, what else has been happening over the past couple months? There is definitely still stuff happening. One of the things that comes to mind first is, what's it called? Like a registry that all of the parties have wanted to create a foreign, I'm going to call it an affiliation registry. I don't think that's what it's actually called. But (laughs) basically, uh, the U.S. has had this um, since the 30s. Australia has it. And it's basically where people have to declare who they're working on behalf of if they're working for another country while in Canada. And so that is one bill related to, you know, foreign interference that people are are trying to approach. They said they were get it to get to it in the summer. It doesn't look like it's happening in the summer. So they said maybe in the fall we'll start to see that. At the same time, the NDP especially are pushing for a public inquiry into foreign interference and in the role that China played more broadly in those specific cases that you mentioned off the top. Something interesting, I think, about that, though, is that, you know, the NDP have said that they want it to be broader than looking at just China. They want to look at Russia and India and Iran and any countries that we might think could pose a potential threat in terms of foreign interference. And they've gotten some substantial pushback about that from other parties, or at least a lack of cooperation on the front. And so that to me also brings it into like beyond the policy into the political territory, right? Like what do those other parties have to gain by focusing all of the emphasis on China specifically in this moment and how much the Trudeau liberals have or have not done something about China? The person I've been thinking of and that I expect is smiling sort of, this summer is David Johnston, because he kind of warned us all about the fact that trying to set up a public inquiry would be very, very hard, hardly feasible, would have huge delays, and that if we were operating from a sense of urgency in terms of trying to look into potential threats before a potential election cycle, that this would not be the best path forward. Basically, there was this I don't want to say herd mentality, but maybe I want to say it in terms of like, this is the best ways forward because this and this and that. And it was a huge moment of, I will say, panic in the spring over this this file that has sort of died down while actually time has just been flying by. No, it's really hard and to, to try to find a formula that actually works that is actually effective in terms of some sort of a public inquiry because some of the information when you're dealing with foreign interference, cannot be made public. And so there's real issues there. There's real disagreement on scope. And so while every political party was looking like they were really eager to look at this since the summer, there hasn't been any news because people are really scratching their heads in terms of how to get it done. The next thing that I wanted to sort of catch up on is another story that we talked about a couple months ago now on the backbench, and that's the closure of Roxham Road. So Roxham Road, of course, was like an irregular border crossing between Quebec and the U.S., and it was predicted basically that if this crossing was closed, it wouldn't actually stop the flow of migrants and refugees into Canada, and that's exactly what's happened since this border crossing has been closed. So a recent CBC article showed that more than 4,000 asylum claims have been processed at Canadian airports uh, in the month of June, which is up from 1,300 claims that were processed in the month of January before the closure of Roxham Road. So obviously closing down these physical irregular border crossings hasn't really stopped the flow of migrants, of asylum seekers in the way that the government maybe was hoping it would. So what specific policy solutions should we be considering when talking about this influx of refugees, migrants, asylum seekers into the country? You know, one of the things that happened also this summer was uh, people trying to compare to people dying, trying to look for the Titanic and the kind of coverage that it got versus uh, people dying in the Mediterranean. And that's kind of where people 
attention turned for a second to what's going on in the sea. People are literally risking drowning to move around, and we're in a global migration crisis. And the way that we've been talking about rocks and roll at the beginning of the year was like, oh, if we close the border, if we switch policies around, people will stop coming and we'll solve the issue of people trying to move around this planet that is a big dumpster fire right now. And this was the most Canadian disconnected thing I could think of in terms of this year, thinking that changing a policy would stop people from migrating and trying to, you know, improve their lives or flee danger. Like, what do you know about the human condition if you think that this is going to be enough? So there's been two things that's been going on. First, as you mentioned, people going to airports, so people coming from different countries, people, for example, have maybe a little bit more means coming from Africa and arriving at Toronto and Montreal airports and trying to get you know, filing asylum claims there. There's been also an influx in the spring because now people can come from Mexico without having visas of uh, asylum seekers from Mexico as well going to the Trudeau airport here in Montreal. And so we think in terms of media coverage that the issue is gone. But really the organizations on the ground are still feeling the same burden of, you know, that, that influx of people trying to move in. And that's not going to go away as long as we haven't solved you know, the climate crisis and the wars of, uh, you know, the 21st century. And so I think what we need to do is accept that reality, share our part of the burden. We have nothing when it comes to scale. We're doing nothing in comparison to what, for example, European countries are doing. We're doing nothing here in Canada. And we're not building infrastructures to be able to welcome more people because we think that we can just control our border and that the issue is not going to concern us. And so as long as we're not accepting that this is an issue, regardless of how we design our policies, I think we're going to be putting the burden of dealing with the reality of it on our community organizations that are underfinanced. Yeah, it kind of feels as though there's a certain attitude of like, if we can just sort of stop the part of the, you know, chain of migration that happens here and try and plug these holes, then that means that there's no longer going to be, you know, migrants or asylum seekers arriving in Canada in such large numbers. Sort of not realizing that all the push factors that lead those people to seek asylum somewhere still exist. And just because we can't see them in our day to day life or the stories aren't getting, like, play in Canadian media, it doesn't mean that it's, like, not still happening. I mean, I think this file and this uh, topic more than so many others for me is, like, one where I really see just, like, the profound failure in terms of leadership. I think that, like, Emily's right in that, like, the message that the Liberal government, that the government's always are trying to like push that is just a lie is that like somehow we can manage this we can manage this with whether it be border closures or you know like whatever and it's just it's a lie we're in a global crisis it's only going to get worse at this point we're boiling and this idea that just like putting putting the brakes on some applications or you know whatever it is is wrong and i think that there's like got to be a narrative shift in terms of leadership and they have to be able to take the hits that are going to come with the fact that I think will help them in the long run because it's the truth that this growing immigration is here to stay. We have to figure out how to do policies to tackle that as opposed to like making sure people stay out or stay in at an appropriate measure. 
On top of it all, the climate sort of Damocles hangs above our heads, where if you think the refugee crises that we face are significant now, incidentally, remember Syria? Remember when we pretended to care about Syria and we've forgotten about that? Uh, that's a drop in the bucket compared to what's coming when climate refugees both internally and externally put pressure on the country. Because what happens when a city burns to the ground? Where do those people go who live here now? What happens when uh, around the world places become uninhabitable because it's too hot? What happens then? And we have no plan for that. And it risks sparking a significant reactionary right-wing backlash that is going to drive the country to some very, very nasty places and is already driving us there. And I don't see anyone in power thinking about this in any serious way. Kind of from crisis to crisis, right? I'm glad that you brought up this notion, David, of internal and external climate refugees that we're going to see in increasing numbers because sort of as of the time that we're speaking now— A bunch of British Columbia is on fire. Much of the Northwest Territories is on fire. The whole city of Yellowknife has been, you know, evacuated, essentially, which is a whole operation given just the lack of available transport options in and out. And we've seen, you know, really across the country, Nova Scotia as well, we've had just the most intense wildfire season that I certainly can remember. And if you look at the amount of hectares that have been burned, I think objectively it is. You know, this is a tough one because we're kind of in the midst of this crisis still, But is there anything we can kind of learn from the government response to these disasters, either in the sense of, like, have we learned anything new about, like, you know, the particular dysfunction of our government in response to these disasters? Is there anything that we've learned in terms of how we can respond to these things better in the moment? Part of it is a lot of people are having a harder time putting the C word, climate change, on it within Canada uh, than from the outside. And this impetus to be, we're going to be responding to this crisis without making it political and just, you know, be about the logistics of getting people to safety because we're in the midst of it and we don't want to be arguing while literally fire is is around us has made it really hard from within Canada to have some clear words spoken about, especially by our leadership in terms of what is the cause of this. And so you have weird situation, for example, in Alberta, with people welcoming people coming over from Yellowknife, and yet just you're hearing amazing, really long-winded answers from some of the Alberta elected, you know, ministers and whatnot in terms of, oh, there might be several causes to the fact that there's fire. Some of them are human started by human. Yes, climate change maybe plays a role, but there's like similar, there's so many factors and we don't want to get into, you know, that. I would just add that like, is the time for climate revolution not now? <laughs> like, this is all I, I keep thinking about, like, oh my gosh, we uh, like, they're talking about like, in terms of like policies that the government is pursuing that are like, in response to this, like, let's make a national firefighter service and forest fighter service and stuff like that. And it's like, okay, yeah, sure. But that really doesn't matter when the potential next prime minister, Pierre Polyev is up in Northern Ontario talking about like, let's like triple mining in the region. It just doesn't matter unless, you know, we totally revolutionize our approach to fossil fuels, um, to industry influence, to all of these things. And so I'm going to suggest abolishing more people, more oil execs, more more big bank funders. 
the like grief of seeing this all is so devastating. I'm just like also very tired of these narratives of like, we are doing everything we can and like, we will get through this. And I'm like, no, we won't. You're liars. Unless, you know, we do, we do something a lot more substantial. And if there's a time to talk about it, I think it should be now. And I'm just waiting for somebody to really push that forward. I don't totally understand how you can see like the amount of people this year alone that have lost their homes or had to leave home for like long durations of time all across the country and like not consider this to be a moment for like extremely substantial action. Like this is like very obviously a big problem. And it's strange to see this sort of incrementalism or like you said, like worse Like, just saying, like, kind of, fuck it, we ball. Like, you know, it's already so bad. Let's just do more extraction. I don't know. David, any thoughts you want to... This is so bleak. Do you have any thoughts on this? (laughs) Nothing less bleak. For a long time, I pushed myself on the idea that the hope frame is an important one when dealing with climate change, because as soon as you abandon that, then it's game over. And it's very easy for privileged people to abandon that because they tend to suffer less than, than those who, who are more exploited and more vulnerable. And I still believe that. But I feel increasingly the hope bit and the here's what we can do bit are, are incidental appendages to doomsday prophecies. And we don't really care about them. We just tack them on because we have to tack them on because it's expected. And yet we sort of collectively accept that the next step is going to be us dividing ourselves into roving gangs to patrol our little sectors of the desolate post-apocalyptic territory. In our heads, we're kind of already there. And then we've given up on, on truly fighting climate change. We've sort of slipped into, okay, let's talk mitigation, but we'll, we'll just expect science and technology to solve that. And then maybe deep down, we truly believe that won't really work. And so we're just getting ready to make necklaces out of ears. and this summer has felt like that when we've lost the number of days to tornadoes to uh, smoke-filled ash-filled days where you can't go outside to extreme storms to to go to riley's point on revolution there, there are days i think this isn't a perfect analogy but if if this were a war equivalent and the people who are effectively climate arsonists were the equivalent of of people indiscriminately killing during a war, we'd be talking about war crimes. And we'd be, we'd be expecting to see people in the docket at The Hague or elsewhere. And I do think it's an appropriate analogy, if a little bit stretched, that it's effectively the equivalent of war crimes when you add up the suffering and death that people are knowingly exacerbating in the interests of profit. And I think the sooner we start talking about that, at least to indicate how serious this is, the better, because we seem to be cruising towards potential destruction of large pockets of the planet, including ecosystems, wildlife, you know, flora, fauna, and and ourselves, which to me seems like an extraordinarily serious thing on par with some of the great atrocities, even beyond the great atrocities of, of the last century and this one, which you would think would warrant a little bit more panic and, and accountability. Not to sound like an Instagram slideshow, like no one is talking about this, but I really sometimes feel like the conversation we're having about it is so, so divorced from the reality of the situation. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. 
we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. All right. Now it's time for Private Members Bills, the part of the show where we let our panelists set the agenda for once. Without further ado, I'd like to call on the Honourable Member from Ottawa South to introduce a private member's bill. Honourable Speaker, I would like to introduce an outsized controversial bill. We've been talking about some pretty uncontroversial stuff so far. I'd like to talk about something that's going to be a little bit more controversial. Uh, I would like to move fall up by a full month to August 21st. Right now it's September 21st is the launch of fall. Uh, I'd like to move it up to August 21st to give us a little more time to lean into the season that um, is truly a season of renewal and rebirth, fall, which classically associated with renewal and rebirth, which contains some of the nicest weather in the country, some of the best foods, including all the pumpkin spice bullshit that comes out, and uh, for students, a, a sense of, of community and return to, to new adventures uh, because summer is a trash season. So I would truly like to, to press forward with this, moving this up by a month, and perhaps even shifting the, the Christmas season ahead a couple of weeks too. And I think if you've been out to any retail stores in the last couple of days, you know it's already happening on the ground. The, the job creators and the engines of industry are already running at full fall. And uh, I think it's probably time that we caught up to them. Mm. So I'm I'm a big fan of fall. I think that if we can get like, you know, that kind of good early fall weather for a little bit longer, I would definitely be in favor of that. That sort of mid-September, all you need is a light jacket sort of vibe. I think I would love a couple more weeks of that, particularly after the summer that we've had. Get more girls weather. <laughs> David's really agitating for early fall by already having changed his Twitter display name to like a themed fall thing. And, you know, if you get your way, fall would be right now, which I think is something that I wouldn't hate. I, I've always been a fan of it. Next up, we'll hear from the honorable member from Outremont. I'm sorry I'm going to be, I don't want to say bleak, but uh, I'm going to be serious again. One thing that has been gathering a lot of attention here in Quebec that I don't think has reached the rest of the country as much is the whole crisis in West Africa and in Niger uh, in particular. And I think the reason it's spoken about more in French because it's basically a French imperial war in the sense that there are several countries there that are very much under its political influence that have been looking into getting closer to Russia, essentially, and or just using Russia as a tool to get further away from France, I think is more accurate and it's um because of because of the political and the economic interests is there it's it's creating a lot of of reactions uh Nisha has a lot of uranium for example that is feeding the European Union and so i just wanted to maybe say that everything that we've been saying about Russia in terms of you know we need to be careful about the sanctions when there's a regime that's doing things that we in the west don't like because we don't want to punish the people we only want to punish the mean oligarchs that are close to Putin. What I've been noticing is that none of that is true when it comes to Niger. Like, the countries nearby have been basically cutting off 
electricity. They've been spiraling inflation in retaliation to the coup. And basically nobody gives a shit that this is already one of the most impoverished countries in the world and that they're punishing the, the, the population for basically sticking it to France and having a military coup. And basically the result is that people are like, oh, the West doesn't give a shit about us. Obviously they're cutting us our electricity because we disobeyed. And so it's great. <laughs> it's creating this cycle, which I think is really fascinating in terms of It's a really good school to look into, you know, what neocolonialism looks like in the region. And obviously, it's there might be awful consequences as well in terms of living condition for people. But I just want to encourage people to actually look into it and look at the double standards when it comes to international sanctions for some countries and don't give a shit about others because like apparently Africans are just used to suffer. So who gives a shit? Yeah, I feel like that's a big difference between when we talk about applying sanctions to Russia versus applying sanctions to like anywhere in Africa or the Middle East. It's a very different attitude that people take yep. where it's like there's this sort of dehumanization of the people that are on the receiving end. Soon, the Christian girl, Autumn girl, and the associated meme is going to come out of hibernation. All of the politicians will be back in the House of Commons, squabbling like they usually do. And maybe we'll hear the crinkle of some autumn leaves underfoot. And most importantly, David Moskrop will, I mean, it sounds like he's already getting into his pumpkin spice zhuzh, but he will definitely be getting his fix of all of the associated pumpkin products and all of the best Halloween decor from Costco and all of these things. But more pertinently for our purposes, what should we be paying attention to and keeping on our radar in Canadian politics as fall and the return of the House of Commons approaches? So first thing, there was a huge cabinet shuffle this summer. We saw seven rookies join the front bench uh, and then seven ministers get dropped. And the majority of cabinet roles got reassigned. So even for those people who were staying in cabinet, they maybe didn't keep their same role. So Minister Anita Anand was moved from defense to become the president of the Treasury Board. Bill Blair went into defense, which meant he left his role as emergency preparedness minister. Sean Fraser went from immigration to housing, infrastructure, and communities. We've got new people in employment, new person in with official languages. Pablo Rodriguez, the supervisor of Bill C-18 and Bill C-11 and all of these media bills that have been controversial lately got moved from Heritage to be the transport minister, and Pascal Saint-Ange is taking his place. So it seems like this is a pretty major shakeup and not that common. What kind of changes do we anticipate seeing, if any, uh, after this? Cabinet shuffles are, are interesting to me because, like, I understand that the whole thing is about more than anything signaling priorities. And so it's clear with this cabinet shuffle what, like, Trudeau was trying to do was to say, like, economics are at the, the forefront for us. Perhaps the, the biggest name in his cabinet, the one that every voter might know, is, like, Christia Freeland. He kept her where she was at and Minister of Finance. I wonder, and I don't know if David or Emily maybe thinks otherwise, but, like, I just feel like other than, like, really in tune, like politics nerds. I don't know how much an average voter cares about a cabinet shuffle. I think that what will end up mattering is if then they see actual policy changes that impact their lives. And then Trudeau can attribute this to be like, see, I switched the cabinet. I did whatever. It, it might work for them in the long run. Maybe it re reinvigorates them um, as like the cabinet themselves um, for their work. That could be an option. I don't know that necessarily changing these positions does something to affect voters in the way that perhaps they were hoping it to. The TV coverage that I watched of the cabinet shuffle included the journalists from, like, I don't know, CBC Newsnet or whatever, literally saying, now most Canadians don't care about this. And I was like, so true. I barely even care about it. I mean, I was on CBC Newsnet saying exactly that. So 
<laughs> it was fun saying it. Yeah. But really, when you see shuffles like this, it's very much about winning an election. So what you saw is that the people who were not running again got moved out and that the people who are in writings that are switch writings, for example, in the GTA, got promoted so that they get higher profiles. And people who are doing a lot of internal fundraising were really good at organizing also got some promotions as well. So I think we need to see it not only as in terms of the policy issue, but really in terms of like the politics, uh, organizational campaign issues and making sure that you have the right team around you to be able to run again for government whenever the liberals already. And so if you take that lens into analyzing the shuffle, I think it gives you a key to understanding a lot of what happened. Yeah. And I think this notion of like there's an election coming soon and parties are sort of jockeying for position and getting themselves ready. That's something that seems to be on everybody's mind. Obviously, we have this sort of arrangement right now where the NDP have agreed to like a sort of confidence and supply set up with the liberals. But we also know that that's an agreement that could, in theory, break down at any time and we could have an election kind of whenever. So one thing that we've been seeing, I think, quite a lot this summer is that the official opposition, the Conservative Party, has been saying a lot, making a lot of appearances in different places, and also sort of surging in the polls if you're the sort of person who really cares about polls. What is it that the conservatives have been doing effectively, or is it just that people are over the government now that the liberals have been in power for eight years? Has their recent surge been caused by Pierre Poilievre wearing his tight tees and his aviator sunglasses, David? I really dislike and am offended at the fact that I need to talk about the way politicians dress and construct their image. But it is unfortunately a public interest question when parties cynically deploy strategies to try to sell politicians to us by way of image instead of substance. So I don't like having to talk about it, but we do have to talk about it when the parties make it something we need to talk about. And, and the liberals are notorious for this. This is not just a conservative thing. The liberals do this very consciously. So the conservatives are trying to remake Polyev as sort of accessible, appealing, just an average Joe, not some political weasel who's been in power uh, since he was in his 20s and never had a real job. They're trying to make him an everyday guy. Somebody would run into Home Depot and want to have a conversation with about lawnmowers for a couple of minutes, you know. And they are trending up in the polls as high as 10 points in some instances, probably a little bit lower. Those numbers are breaking for them in favorable ways in particular areas. So it's looking good for them in Ontario. It's looking good for them in Atlantic Canada, parts of it at least, uh, particularly in New Brunswick. And it's looking good for them in British Columbia, at least good enough. Uh, and it always looks good for them in the prairies. And th that could be in large part because the government is aging like milk left out in the sun, as governments do. Uh, governments defeat themselves in this country. I do truly believe that. People get sick of them over time. And they look for the nearest party around and they vote for them. And if it's the Tories in power, it's the Liberals. If it's the Liberals in power, it's the Tories. And on top of that, the Conservatives are very, very carefully and smartly and effectively talking about working class issues and working class challenges and uh, speaking an accessible working class idiom. That whole suite of approaches seems to be working. And if I'm the Liberals, I would expect not to be in government uh, two or three years from now. It's tough to come back from that kind of deficit. And so we're going to watch where things trend. But right now it's uh, it's looking good for the Conservatives. Three challenges for the Conservatives. One would be how, when you look at the polls, uh, yes, there's a lot of people who like Poitiers right now, but there's also a lot of people who hate his guts. 
much more so than uh, Andrew Shear and Erin O'Toole. And so there is the potential for growth there is still when there's people who are passionately against you. And second of all, there's the issue of when it comes to growth outside of the prairies where it doesn't matter basically the way our election system function. In Quebec, the Bloc Québécois has been basically nowhere to be seen in the last in the last two years. And they're going to be resurfacing in the next election. So they're kind of a wild card. And so the people who are would be likely to not vote for Trudeau anymore might just go to Yves-François Blanchette. And because they have been so quiet and they kind of like stayed out of the fray, it's very hard to predict how that's going to go on that front. And in Ontario, there has been a lot of infighting with the Dockford Conservatives, and we've seen it in some by-elections already, how Dockford and Pierre Poliev folks really do not get along right now. And if uh, Dockford continues to be the strongman in Ontario, continues to not get along with the federal conservative, this could have a serious impact in terms of campaign organizing for the key ridings in Ontario that could put Pierre Poliev in power. And so when you look at the global numbers, yes, it gives you a certain perspective. But when you look at where the battlegrounds are, probably Ontario and Quebec, there are still some very serious challenges for the Conservatives. So I think one of the things that when we eventually have this election is probably going to be the issue that people talk about is the idea of cost of living. Over the past, you know, year years, maybe even. There's been a number of hot button issues related to this, you know, the cost of housing, both how difficult it is to rent and also the increased like mortgage prices that we're seeing as a result of interest rates having spiked. The fact that there's been significant inflation on the price of a lot of things that people need to buy day to day, specifically groceries. So what has this government actually done over the past little while to mitigate the cost of living crisis? And what should they be doing perhaps when Parliament goes back in session in terms of what can be done differently? What they're doing right now is trying to say, like, we're going to be tackling this. You know, they've promised uh, to build, I think, something like five million homes. But currently, I don't believe they're on track to actually um, build those. And, and that's just like, you know, one piece of the affordability puzzle for sure is housing. But in in that point specifically that I harp on, because it's the one that I think about the most and I follow the most, is like we've seen a complete lack of focus on where I think the issues are are the hardest for people and the hottest for people that would lead to things like houselessness, which is in limits on like rental increases that you can take. Most of the wins, I think, in terms of housing coming from people power as opposed to government intervention, people doing rent strikes and refusing to, to leave their apartment buildings and organizing against greedy landlords. And that has been a sign, I think, of, of where we've seen the most progress. But there's a lack of emphasis emphasis on building affordable housing. There's been a lack of emphasis on building social housing as well. While they're doing, you know, what might be large speaking, the right thing to do, get more houses out there for people. I think that there are so many more points of intervention that they don't seem to be willing to tackle or that they're just not doing with enough urgency, in my opinion. And the Bank of Canada is going to fight like hell for the 2% target rate, and they're going to keep ratcheting up interest rates until they get there. And we saw last month that inflation had cooled briefly in June, went back up to in, in July. And the, the fact is the bank is where we ought to be as individuals paying a lot of attention. When we talk about getting inflation under control, it's a great euphemism. But what that looks like on the ground is people having less money, which means less money to hire people, less money to pay for their mortgages or their rent, and less money to pay for groceries, less money to pay service or credit card and auto debt. So that's what's going to happen. And the government is going to have to be able to respond to the destitution and suffering that emerges from the monetary policy over which they have chosen to have no control. Uh, the government has told departments to cut $15 billion 
So there's going to be lots of cuts. Government has said that's not going to be programming cuts, but it shows that they're in a in a cutting mind, which may mean that they're not in a spending mind when it comes to spending to support Canadians. And the provinces may well be in the same position. And that's going to leave a lot of people high and dry. I don't think people are going to be seeing their lives improve in the next six to 18 months. I think they'll be seeing them get progressively worse. I think we're in for a real rough ride. Right, right, let's adjourn. That's been The Backbench. We'll talk again in two weeks when hopefully my hunt for Stop Making Sense re-release tickets will have manifested something. I'm manifesting. I'm manifesting. I'm going to make it happen. It's important for my spiritual journey. If you've been following along with what happens in Ottawa, let us know what you've been watching closely, what you'd like to hear us discuss, and what esoteric Canadian politics content you want us to break down. Send us your questions, your concerns, and your rants. You can email us at backbench at candleland.com, and we're also on Twitter at Backbenchcast. I'm Matea Roach, and you can find me still on Twitter and also on Instagram at Matea Roach. David, where can people find you? You can find me wherever a whiff of pumpkin spice hangs in the crisp fall air. Riley, where can people find you? People can find my work on my website, RileyYesNo.com. I'm begrudgingly, I still have a Twitter account as well, at RileyYesNo maybe. And also, if you're in Toronto, you will maybe get to hear Red Surgeons live. Looks like I'm going to Red Surgeons live if I'm in town when it happens. Uh, and Emily, where can people find you? People can find me on Detour on Canada Land. I also have my columns in Le Devoir every Thursday. Jonathan Dem, the director of Stop Making Sense, had an eclectic filmography. In addition to the acclaimed concert film, he also directed Silence of the Lambs, for which he won the 1992 Oscar for Best Director, and other weird, artsy sort of festival fodder like Rachel Getting Married, which premiered at TIFF. He was a real one. Great director. This episode was produced by Viva Lassard and Noor Azrie with additional production by Caleb Thompson. Our managing editor is Annette Ajofo, and our editor-in-chief is Karen Pugliese. Theme music is by Nathan Burley. If you value this podcast, support us. You'll get premium access to all our shows ad-free, including early releases and bonus content. You'll also get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on merch, tickets to our live and virtual events, and more than anything, you'll be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis by keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. You can listen ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Thank you for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.